Welcome to AutoLine This Week, where we're going to be talking all about the retail, sales, and marketing end of the business, because my guest today is Jeremy Anwell from Edmunds.com. Great having you back here on AutoLine This Week. Great to be here. And also joining us this morning are Steve Finley from Ward's Auto and Edward Lapham from Automotive News, and great having the both of you here, Thank too. Thank you to be here. So, Jeremy, what do you see happening in the, the dealer end of the business from, from this standpoint? You know, things were going along. It looked like okay uh, in 2008. Then the bottom fell out of the market. We saw this, this whole, you know, collapse of the auto industry, especially uh, the Detroit three automakers. And, but now it looks like things are coming back and, and coming back fairly quick. But where's the retail end of the business right now? We've seen thousands of dealers been forced out of the business. What's your vantage point? How are they doing right now? Yeah, I think it's a key question, and, and there's probably several layers to it. So on the surface layer, which is what everybody kind of looks at, you look at dealer profitabilities. A lot of dealers are now reporting record profits that's really started last year with some of the supply shortages that we saw because of the earthquake and the tsunami. And anytime there's the shortage of product, prices can firm up, and that certainly helped dealer margins. But that's continuing as we're kind of going through this typical uh, post-recession bounce. So we're seeing a nice recovery, and that's uh, increasing demand, probably at a pace now that's actually outpacing this the increase in supply. So dealer margins are good. Dealers are seeing record profitabilities. That would at the surface, look like a pretty healthy state. I mean, if you're making a lot of money, things have to be, have to be pretty good. But when you start kind of looking uh, deeper and deeper and deeper, this is still an industry where there are some sort of fundamental issues. If, if you look at it from the customer perspective, buying a car has gotten better, but it still takes way too long. It's very frustrating trying to get straightforward pricing. So there's a lot of issues around the retail process itself. And from the dealer perspective, there are issues around, and we see a lot of this now with this tension between the manufacturers and the dealers around facilities. So the, the way consumers buy cars today is different than it was 20 years ago, but I don't see the manufacturers have really caught up to that fact, and this, this whole issue around uh, facilities is kind of a ripple of that. But there's also issues from the dealer perspective about salesman's turnover. You know, how do you, as a salesperson, make a career out of selling cars today? It's really tough, and so there's this just constant turnover. You've got to constantly train people. You've got a relationship business that, you know, selling cars is inherently a face-to-face -face relationship once a customer comes into the dealership, and you've got salespeople that don't stick around. So how can there be a relationship that develops? My point is that on the surface, it's very healthy, but as you start to look deeper, there are still lots of issues around auto retailing. Where do you think the next major evolutionary uh, change is going to happen? I think the, the trick, and you see this, you know, we've all been in the business a long time. This, this goes back way before I, I, came, I came in in the 80s, and back then people were talking about the retail revolution, and they probably were in the 70s as well. So outsiders are always looking at this industry thinking this ought to be easy to fix, and they want to come in and revolutionize it, and the industry always pushes back and says, no, it's not so easy. But I do think there's opportunity, and what's interesting about this is I think a lot of the real change that eventually will happen, I think, is going to come from within the industry. And I think that maybe it's because of legislation or the fact that the manufacturers unknowingly or perhaps are resisting a lot of uh, potentially positive change. The most likely uh, source for this is really going to be the dealerships themselves. There are dealers out there that I think are going to step back and think about their business from a different perspective, a fundamentally consumer perspective, and organize around delivering a better process to consumers, leveraging the internet when that's appropriate, but really focusing on what consumers want. Quicker, faster process? 
a lot of it, uh, you know, the interesting thing is consumers like buying cars. What they don't like is a lot of the process of buying cars. But you talk to consumers, they look forward to it. Hey, I can, I, you know, they really obviously love to get the new car, but some of the process is fun. I mean, people go to auto shows in vast numbers. One of the biggest shows in the world is here in Detroit. They're not doing that because they don't want to. They do it and they, they actually pay because it's fun. So it's a question of what do consumers enjoy and making sure that they, they can maximize that to whatever degree they want, but the parts that they don't like for instance, how long does it take to get into the F&I office on a weekend? Mm -hmm. Some of the busy stores, it can take an, a couple hours. You, you, from a consumer perspective, you look at this and it's incredibly frustrating because you've been conditioned to you know, buying books or whatever on Amazon and it takes seconds. So why can't the paperwork be ready before you come into the store? Why can't there be an appointment so you don't even have to go in on the weekends? I mean, there's just lots of things that are bubbling up from the consumer perspective that they can't figure out. How come the rest of the world has moved on, and yet buying a car doesn't seem like it's really changed that much? But isn't it because nothing's regulated like the car business? I mean, ever since 9-11, now you've got to do all kinds of background checks right at the dealership to see, you know, are you paying? Sure. Uh, if somebody comes in and wants to pay cash for a car, man, there's going to be a deep investigation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's unbelievable. No, I, I would be there has to be. Yeah. By, by law, by right. Over 10,000. That's right. Yeah. Well, let's not get off on a rant about yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, we could, but that would be a different show. <laughs> yeah. But think about that, though. So if you're the consumer and you're on the internet, there is absolutely no reason why technology couldn't have elicited a lot of that information from you. So you, you're, on a, you're on the internet, you fill out forms, all that information gets lost. When you get into the dealership, it's like somebody hit a restart button and you've got to start the process all over again. No reason for that. Yeah, there, so, you always have to have efficiencies, but John raises an, interest, an interesting point in that on one hand, you have the dynamics of somebody wanting to get in and out of the F&I office. Yeah. So, you know, there's the clock ticking for the F&I manager. On the other hand... We should just say, for those who don't know, F&I is finance, finance and... Insurance, and, and basically financing yeah, yeah. your car, Sorry, wrapping Steve, up the deal. Oh, no, please. Yeah. Uh, and then aftermarket products. But on the other hand, there are these disclosure needs mm -hmm. to make sure that the paperwork is right, that the, the dealer is compliant with all the regulations. So you have additional regulations requiring more time in the F&I office, and then you have the customer saying, I want less time in the F&I office. So you get conflicts of interest in that regard, and it's tough to figure out you know, how to a do it right of, when you're dealing with yeah. that. A lot of the <laughs> issues actually uh, waiting to get into the F&I office, too. So that's where I think dealers should be thinking about appointments and Absolutely. scheduling. And, and as I said, having everything prepared for the customer before they get in, not waiting until they get in there to prepare all the paperwork. So there are structural issues, and I, I'm not suggesting any of that stuff's going to go away. But I think by understanding the pain points for consumers, it is possible for dealers to figure out what are the things that are important to consumers make sure that they've got the processes in place to deliver on those things consistently and then brand their businesses in a way that communicates the fact that these, deal these dealerships, these businesses uh, are uh, focused on consumers and are delivering on things that they want. And there's several steps to that. When you start to look at this industry, we tend to find dealerships who are not very well branded. They may have awareness, but not, not branding. Because branding really, to me, is a set of expectations in a positive way, things that consumers can expect to get when they get to a dealership. So create the right expectations, deliver on those expectations. My sense is that there is the possibility for the dealers that do this to become much more successful than we typically think about when we think about successful dealerships. And there's a few that have done this. Like in LA, we have, you're probably familiar, with Longo Toyota. Uh, yes, indeed. 20,000 vehicles, I mean, staggering. They're more like a distributorship in some ways than a dealership. How did they become so successful? Or Galpin Ford, how did they become so successful? And I think that in the future, we'll see more dealerships like that. 
customers today, consumers, I, I forget what the most recent statistic is on what percentage of them use the internet in some way before they actually walk 80, into the dealership. 80%, 80, it's, yeah. it's, it's a big number. Is the satisfaction of the customer greater if they, if they do some of the things ahead of time, if they yeah. go through, for example, either the factory site or, or, or a third-party site such as Edmunds? Thanks for mentioning Edmunds, by the way. <laughs> wow, we, shall we mention them all? Yeah. There's a lot. We're assuming yeah. the answer is yes. <laughs> Why? And how well, would, it may not be. How does that change the experience for them? Yeah, in some ways. So why do, why do people come to the Internet? It's interesting to think about the history of this because it really goes back. Edmunds was the first site that went online in 94, and what drove the traffic way back then was this novelty of being able to access invoice price because back then invoice was kind of the secret sauce, and consumers... <laughs> We're really interested in invoice, perhaps for the wrong reasons, but it relates to this tension around pricing, and they were using invoice as a benchmark to try to judge the deal that they were getting from the, from the dealer. So there's, and there's still issues around, uh, around pricing and what's a good price, what's a bad price. It, just parenthetically, it's interesting to note that a good, good price in the consumer mind is not necessarily the lowest price. So we tend to get confused about pricing in this industry and think that the Internet's created this race to the bottom, and that's not necessarily the case. In fact, when we were talking about successful dealers, they tend to have higher grosses than the average, not lower. So it's a strange business where volume and grosses don't run in opposite tracks, which you see in a lot of businesses. Anyway, the issue with the Internet, though, is I think it creates expectations in the consumer's mind in terms of seamlessness. So I do think today's car shoppers have been heavily influenced by their shopping experience. Because if you're going to the Internet to buy a, or to research a car, you're certainly going to the Internet to buy other things. And you're conditioned to expect certain things based on, on those experiences. And sites like Zappos and Amazon, where comparing products are, is, is, is seamless, and you can get price quotes instantly, and you can hit one button, and the, the product gets delivered to your house in just a day or two. That ain't happening in the car industry. So I think, if anything, the ex expectations that have been created by the Internet create more tension around some of the disconnects that occur within the, the auto retail environment. Is part of the problem, though, the franchise laws or the protection thereof by the different states? I mean, I would have thought that if not for uh, the franchise laws, you'd see retailing over the Internet, you know, where you wouldn't have to even go into the dealership. Now, you can uh, hire a third party that will go buy it. But as you know, you pretty much have to buy a car through a dealer and you cannot buy direct from the factory, though in some cases the factory would like to do it. They're prohibited by law from doing so. But, but they you did kind of try that in the late yeah. 90s. It didn't work out so well. And you, you can buy a car without going into a dealership. Yeah, that My happened. colleagues bought one from a dealership in Ohio. See, that's a key point. Because I think if you look at the history of the franchise laws, they originated as a defense um, against the manufacturers. The dealers were worried that they didn't have, you know, the, the big manufacturers had all the power. Back then you had standalone stores with single operator franchisees. And, and there was a lot of power that the manufacturers had and the dealers felt vulnerable. They got this web of franchise laws set up. Some of the laws that are characterized as franchise laws really aren't. There's consumer protection laws in various states that prevent dealers talking about invoice and that's a whole other thing. I do think the franchise laws serve to inhibit uh, potentially beneficial change so they have been an uh, inhibitor, but I, I also think that dealers are perfectly capable, if they desired, of being the source of change in this business. And I, and I think that we're going to start to see that. I think the time is about right. And I, as I talk to dealers, I see a lot of receptivity, now, receptivity to the idea. And I think as they start to realize the enormity of the opportunity, there's going to be some major dealer groups or well-financed 
standalone stores that start to experiment in a, uh, dare I say, revolutionary way about how to respond to what the consumer is really looking for. And well, I, there's the consumer, you know, there's the consumer using the internet, and there's the consumer using the internet. Uh, only about 25 consumers uh, will file an internet lead, basically coming in. 25 percent. 25 percent. I'm sorry. Uh, that seems even a little high. Um, the leads, yeah, the leads but process. It, it, such a big <laughs> deal is made about this internet customer when, in yeah. fact, not that many people are doing that. 80% of the people that end up at a dealership had not made an appointment, had not used the Internet uh, to contact the dealer, but they sure had used the Internet to research. And, uh, you know, we talked about 80% being the figure that right. researches. Yeah, I, think, I think it's higher than that. It's got to be higher than that. Who really, unless I'm out of touch, in their right mind, would buy a car without doing anything on the Internet in terms of research? inventory, selection, yeah. all, all, everything that you can do on the Internet. So, you know, there's the difference between using the Internet actually to submit a lead and using the Internet to, right. for your preparation of going into that dealership. So the leads thing, in my mind, is kind of a broken process. It is frustrating because you have to fill out a form, which is sort of a foreign concept. We're used to tweeting and texting and filling out emails, but what's this form all about? It is frustrating because there's a cycle time to response, meaning, and it's better than it used to be. So it used to be days or never that a dealer would get back to you. Today, it's generally within 24 hours, although there are still dealers that don't respond. And it, the promise that a lead offers, which is a price quote from a dealer, is a, often a broken promise because most dealers are not comfortable giving prices over the Internet. And just as a little bit of a tangent here, we do have this standoff between consumers who want price quotes from dealers and dealers who are reluctant to give price quotes to consumers for good reason, because the customer in many cases will, will just use that price quote to go to another store. Sure. So we have this tension that's been existing for decades where you know, there's a little bit of a trust issue between both parties for good reasons on both sides. But I think that the interesting thing, and the way I kind of view this, is that on the Internet there are a lot of sites that act kind of as an extension of the showroom. So if you go way back in time, consumers would go to dealers, they'd get these brochures, they'd go pick them up, they'd take them home, and they'd look at all of them, and they're doing this comparison shopping, and they'd get those brochures from dealerships. So the dealerships were a source of information about vehicles, auto shows to some degree, but if you wanted to get into the nuts and bolts, you went into the store. Today, consumers, as you point out, you'd have to be you know, a little bit out of your mind not to be on the Internet to do that, because it's so much easier. I mean, who wants to drive all over town to get a spec or an option sheet or whatever? So the sales process that used to be the greeting, the needs analysis, the product presentation, the demo ride, you know, all the way through to delivery has now been ripped apart by the consumer in a way that they kind of control. And the, the, the needs analysis, the product presentation, they are largely self-directing. So the opportunity here is to think about, think about it as an extension of the showroom. And the dealer doesn't own these showrooms because obviously, you know, sites like Edmunds are, are fiercely independent. But there is a connection between what the consumer is doing on the Internet and the retail experience. There should be. That connection right now exists in the form of a lead, which, as I just said, is fundamentally not a very good connection. So the opportunity here, I think, is to figure out how to create a seamless connection between what the customer is doing on the Internet and, getting, and what happens in the retail environment, of which the dealer's website could be a part of it, the car company website can be a part I mean, it is a web. People are going to all these different websites. I think as you start to think about the Internet in some respects as an extension of the showroom, it, it, it really illuminates some, some fascinating things that could be done that could be very, very customer-centric and yet also very good for dealers. 
Well, just third-party sites uh, aside for a second, I mean, the dealer now has, any dealer has two showrooms. One is the virtual showroom and one is the actual showroom. Yeah. They better make sure both are good or else they're going to be in they trouble. They tend to get a little stressed out about, uh, about Edmunds because they feel like we're competing with them. They think that traffic should be going to their showroom and not going to, you know, an independent showroom. And I think that's, obviously, I'm biased, but I think that's a little misguided. People are going to sites like Edmunds for legitimate reasons, and that's because they want cross-industry information, and they want it to be you know, neutral and third-party. So there's a role there, and I think you know, dealers can kind of get their heads around the idea that there is synergies, not conflicts, between the different sites that are on the Internet. That's a lot more productive. I started out asking you what changes you saw going on in the retail Sorry, business, and that was really good. No, no, don't get me wrong. Now I want to change a little bit. What do you see going on from what, uh, the standpoint of what people are actually buying? We're seeing gas prices going up real high right now. The people are still, you know, hurting from the from the the, the great recession. Yeah. Do you see any real changes in the marketplace in terms of what people are buying? Do you see shifting segments or no? Well, there's always the predictable pattern. So we've seen every time, and this is sort of becoming an annual event now, where gas prices spike in the run-up to spring, and then they kind of come back down again moving into summer. So whenever that happens, you see a shift in preferences maybe from full-size sedans to, to compacts, whatever it might be, so Malibus perhaps to cruises. And that started again already. But it's interesting because last year we didn't see the decline in gas prices after the run-up that we saw in the spring that we saw in the years past. Gas prices stayed at a pretty elevated level. And yet the market shifted back to the more traditional preferences the market seems to have for the larger vehicles. So we, we did a correlation study which showed pretty clearly that what people are really react to is the media coverage here. So I, I went, just a couple of weeks ago I, was, I went home and then California you have three news shows back to back to back all around dinner. And every one of those news shows had a five-minute segment about, about gas prices where they're just going on. And they're interviewing people at gas. It's all the same story. You know, they're all interviewing people around the gas pumps. People are talking about how crazy high gas prices are. And even the news report, reporter, the, the anchor person, was saying that, new, that gas prices have never been this high, parenthetically, at this time of year. I mean, there's a lot of hype going on. Yeah. Not that, you know... None of, none so of you us. think it's more the media coverage that affects I, what car sales? I think that the media has an awesome power to focus our attention. And that sometimes that's not necessarily a, <laughs> a great <good> thing. <laughs> but we need, you know, we need to recognize it. So there is a reality. Gas prices are creeping back up again. And certainly people react to that. But the degree of reaction, I think, is strongly influenced by the, by the media. Let's talk about pent-up demand for a minute. Part of Part of the assumption about a recovery is that the, a lot of people were unable to buy new automobiles yeah. or held on to them. And there's yeah. the, there's pent-up demand now moving forward. Is there really a, a traditional amount of pent-up demand, or, or or maybe are the vehicles lasting longer and, and better built, and people don't need to replace them as as often? I think it's a little bit of both. I think if you look at recessions past. What characterizes a recession as it relates to the auto industry is a very rapid decline in sales as the country goes into recession. And then an equally rapid increase, perhaps to new record levels, because as people come back into the market, you have now a groundswell of, of demand that, that pushes sales above any sort of levels. We saw this in the 80s, which in my mind was actually a greater recession than the one we just went through, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> but you know, 1986, we had record sales. We hit 16 million for the first time in history, and that was a rebound from the early, you know, the earlier recession, 81, 82, whatever it was, where car sales really collapsed, and then they just sprung back. What's unique about this recovery is that it's been very tepid. You know, we had a little wobble around cash for clunkers where we kind of juiced the market a little bit. But other than that, sales have been improving, but it's been at a very moderate pace, and that is 
very, I have never seen that in the history of the auto industry and recessions in this country. It's just very, very unusual. So it makes you wonder, where is <laughs> the pent-up demand? Yeah. Now what we're looking at is this year has surprised everyone in terms of the, because most of the forecasts were you know, 13 and a half, 14 million units at the end of the year for the entire year. Now we're racing along. February was a 15 million pacing. So is that suggesting that perhaps we're finally seeing a release of this pent-up demand? Or, you know, another view would be, hey, the weather has been so benign through most of the country and that typically one of the reasons why the SAR algorithm de discounts the winter sales so much or, or gives them such a, an easy time of it, the bar is really low, is because of this, the weather. And there is a correlation, because we're naturally curious, so we did this correlation study, and we see a strong correlation between the average temperature and car sales across many of the states in the United States, not so much in the Sun Belt. So there is something to, something to be said for the fact that the weather, I'm not suggesting global warming is a good thing, by the way, for car sales, because <laughs> all, all we're saying is that if there's snowstorms in February, people buy in March and April. And that's baked into the SAR formula. When you look at March sales, we have to have a 20%, fully 20% increase in sales in March to equal the SAR performance in February. And in my mind, that's really the test. If we hit 15 million in March, then I think we'll have to say, hey, you know what? This pent-up demand is finally being released. And our estimates are there's about 4 million units that, that haven't happened that are waiting to happen. There's more than that if you just do the straight math, but many people bought used cars or just household formation change. There's lots of structural things that occurred, but there's still about four million units that are waiting to be, to be uh, purchased out there. So might we hit 16 this year coming out of the trough? I think if, this, if, if we finally see this trajectory assume a more normal sort of curve to it, 16 million by the end of the year is certainly doable. I don't think it is only because I don't think the supply chain can keep up. Well, that's that one of the pace. echoes. Yeah, we might hit 16 million one month and then there won't be any cars the next month. That's exactly right. In fact, I, I even just talked with somebody who has a car hauling contract, yeah. you know, to haul them to the dealerships. And they were telling me because of the, the Great Recession, so many trucks and trains that haul cars were wiped out of the system, just cleared out that there's about a yeah. 1.8 million vehicle shortfall in car hauling capability right now. So they may even be able to build those cars and not get them to the dealerships, wouldn't they? Well, and if they got them to the dealerships and you have 16 million, uh, dealers downsized in recent years to account for the fact that, uh, you know, sales went from 16 to 13 to 10 million. Early downsized. Can you imagine what <laughs> yeah. the customer satisfaction scores are going to look like if suddenly 16 million people descend on, a, on dealerships who aren't prepared to take on 16 million? You talk yeah. about the F&I office. It's going to be horrendous <laughs> everywhere in terms of satisfaction of customers. It, these are all obviously uh, high-grade problems. I mean, you'd much rather struggle with this than how to deal yeah, with absolutely. 9 million sales. Nice but yeah, to have, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a serious issue. Here's one question I got for you. We see small cars selling better in the United States. I got three questions. What's the answer here? Is it that finally Detroit is putting out good small cars and attracting more of their customers? Is it higher gasoline prices that people think, well, I better get something with better fuel economy? Or is it, and this is what I kind of suspect, that people have really taken it on the chin. They don't have the kind of disposable income they used to, and they're looking at these smaller cars and saying, Man, I can get everything that I want in this small car because they are loading them up with all the options. Hence, they're going to buy small cars because they can save a lot of money. I, th I think what you're pointing out is, is key because it's difficult to look at the data and unpeel fuel efficiency from price because we tend to, you know, smaller cars tend to be less expensive and they also tend to be more fuel efficient. So you see people reacting 
to uh, obviously the recession, and they, they look to be more, I guess, conservative in some of their financial decisions, so they react in different ways. Some people might actually downsize, so you could go from a midsize to a small car, whatever it might be. Uh, we saw a lot of that, particularly a couple of years ago, where people were coming out of near luxury and moving into full size, where the vehicle size was the same, but they were actually trying to save money. And the manufacturers mistook this because these consumers were optioning up their vehicles. It's kind of interesting how people react to recessions because as consumers, we never want to settle. So if, we, if we've achieved a certain standard in our lives, we are loath to give that up, but we'll make all kinds of adjustments as long as we think that we're not settling. So one way they would do that is they'd move from a near luxury car like an ES down into, say, a LaCrosse, and they'd load up the LaCrosse with all kinds of toys and options to feel like it was a luxury car. Car companies were misreading that in terms of consumers um, being less price sensitive, and that wasn't the case at all. But it just shows you how you can infer whatever you want from the, da the data. But I think it's certainly true as people are reacting to economic uncertainty. They look to be more conservative in their, in their financial decisions. The interesting thing about this is that when we're really pragmatic, when you think about the fuel efficiency of today's vehicles, and I'm talking about the traditional internal combustion engine where you know, you've got vehicles now delivering 30 mpg, I'm talking about a real MPG. Combined. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I forget this highway mileage, and we've got the cafe mileage. There's so many MPGs out there now, it's crazy. But I'm talking about real world. The, the benefit you get from going from 30 to 35 in terms of your wallet is actually pretty small. We're not talking about going from 10 miles per gallon up to 30 miles per gallon where there's some real monthly savings. It's, it's not that significant. So I think the, it, go back, it goes back to the point we were making earlier. I think if consumers sit down and do the math, it's not a rational choice to trade in your, your 25 MPG car to get a 30 MPG car because it's going to take you 20 years to get your money back in terms of fuel savings. But the, the media attention sometimes causes us to not think rationally. People just kind of react. They get angst. and you know, it, It's feasible that there's people out there actually buying fuel-efficient cars because of fuel prices, even though it's not a rational decision. Mm -hmm. So you want to shoot the messenger. No, I think, well, I don't, you know, we, could have, we should have another show about the media responsibility. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do that, because actually we've got to wrap this one okay. up. But Jeremy Anwell, thanks so much for coming on. Great having you and Edmunds.com on the show. Steve Finley from Ward's Auto and uh, Edward Lapham from Automotive News. Great having you guys. And thanks, sir. Especially want to thank all of you for having tuned in. And join us again here next week for AutoLine This Week.